Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into episode 78 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans, but the problem with Fish fans is sometimes they get a bit myopic. They can recall ephemera so much ephemera of their favorite band where they were on what day what they ingested in the parking lot what the wook chick and her wook dog said to them that they were controlling with their mind when it comes to other bands they just they don't know any of them and that's it's so weird it's really weird it's really sad you know it just makes me sad guys you know we're here we're hanging out together on a friday Talking to you guys about yeah, other this is bands. Done on a Friday. That's rare. We never do this on Fridays. We never so. do this on Fridays, but we're here for you guys. And we're here to introduce you to other music, to expand your mind beyond the world of Gamehenge and the world of Fish. Mm. And here in episode 78, we are covering a very wild Fish Jam. They're covering the Susie Greenberg from Brooklyn, New York on June 17th, 2004. Our first 2.0 jam in quite some time. Don't ask me when the last one was. I have no I have no recollection. But our first one in quite some time and definitely our very first 2004 jam. And we are very, very excited to be diving into June 2004, a weird and wild and sometimes wonderful, oftentimes well, kind of sad period of fish that we're going to get into here in a little bit. We're very excited for this episode, guys. I think our last 2.0 jam was Deer Creek Gumbo from 2003. That sounds correct. All right. Good jam. That was a good episode. But in this episode, themes that we're going to explore are absurdity in rock, Brooklyn, and great memories of bad baseball. And on that note, let's get to the fish. Susie, 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 
Susie Greenberg, not the most conventional song you think about Harry Jam. So why this jam? Well, there's certainly a handful of interesting versions of this song. I mean, the ones that immediately come to mind are uh, the December 6, 96 version from Vegas with the Elvis impersonators and uh, some less Claypool bass weirdness. The somewhat uh, metallic version from December 28th of 03 in Miami. Obviously, Darien Lake, September 14th of 2000, but none of them quite come uh, close to this. This is not so much Susie Greenberg improvisation as the band pull playing a full Susie Greenberg, ending the song, and then just saying, you know, fuck it. We're in Brooklyn. It's 2004. We're wacky. We're going to break up soon anyway, so let's just tack on a speedy metal jam to the end for the hell of it and freak out the audience. <laughs> That's what they did. It's absurd, very fun, but um, mostly absurd at what's pretty absurd show, actually. Yeah, this really represents the anything goes nature of 2.0, in particular 2004, when the band really seemed to abandon form in many ways and sought to experiment at all costs. Results sometimes be damned. Uh, one would never really argue that this is the most cohesive of jams, but it represents the spirit of throwing all ideas at the wall, seeing what happens. It's one of the more mind-bending moments of the of the uh, two-year experiment that was 2.0, which ultimately ended in tears in a field in Vermont. And this jam really, to me, it sounds like a band on the verge of a breakup. Emotion seems to guide them in this kind of spur of the moment. Let's take it in this direction and let's do this uh, really kind of guides them rather than any sort of precision and focus that we've heard from the band from a jamming standpoint here in uh, pretty much the majority of 3.0 when they have jammed, they've wanted to make sure that they have some sort of a focused idea that they go towards. Whereas here in 2004, it was just kind of about experimentation is, uh, is, is what guides us. Um, so some other notable versions of the song we've got October 31st 1996 of course this was uh, the remaining late Halloween show so this version of Susie has a call Parazzo on, on percussion and the horns with a born under punches tease November 13th 1996 goes into a jam that kind of is a fall 1996 in a nutshell course we had the aforementioned uh, december 6 1996 which has less claypool it's got yodelers and it's got the elvis impersonators going into a suzy q jam jumping into 1999 we have july 25th 99 <sighs> one of the best shows of all time kevin shapiro if you happen to be listening if a friend of kevin shapiro's happens to be listening please 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 just release this show but this is a uh, a fantastic, fantastic 10-minute Susie towards the end of an incredible second set. Yes, Kevin Shapiro released the show so I can hear Brian stop talking about it. <laughs> Only thing that Brian likes as much as July 25th, 1999 is the cross-eyed and painless in Matthew Knight Arena in October 17th. <laughs> Way to throw it back to the last episode. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 9-14-2000, Dave mentioned this. 20-minute uh, monster jam to close set one. I think this is probably my favorite Susie Greenberg of all time. Uh, and Trace. Totally. And yours, and yours. Yeah. Uh, Trey stepping on the mic. It's just so much fun playing underneath this big tent while it's raining like crazy on the outside for everyone. Uh, and then as noted, 
2003. Wild and psychedelic. This was covered in episode 52 by us, holiday special number two. August 11th, 2004. Very killer version. Perhaps uh, the last great full show of 2.0 into Down with Disease. October 31st, 2009, with the late Sharon Jones in the horn section. This was Fest 8. That's a really great version of that song. And then August 17th, 2010. Excellent version. Some would say almost on par with the uh, July 25th, 1999 version. And a fantastic second set. So before we transition here into the significance of the overall show and the larger June 24th, June 2004 run we thought what the hell this Susie Greenberg was played at a show in a baseball uh, field why don't we talk about some great moments in bad baseball Dave and I are both diehard fans of baseball teams that came oh so close to the postseason this year only to collapse in for me really really heartbreaking ways I would say the Mets, was it a very Metsian close to the season? It Not exactly. A real Metsian close to the season would have been a collapse. This is more kind of like they slowly petered out. They were playing <laughs> above their heads. They had an amazing run in July and August beating up on really crappy teams to make things far more interesting than you would have liked. I think that they're actually set up very well for 2020. But less Metsy and more kind of just the little blue engine that could didn't make it down the second half of the mountain. I guess we would say the Cubs had a Metsian slash Cubsian collapse. This oh, was yeah. uh, the Cubs lost one eight in a row, nine in a row. Wow. I'm currently watching uh, as we record. We're we're up seven to one on the Cardinals. This would be our first win in uh, almost two weeks. It matters for nothing right now and that is kind of the point to it um, but great memories in bad baseball we both root for two baseball teams that have filled us with so much joy for such short amount of times and the majority of I think our rooting experiences for these teams has been I loved it I love it all but awful <laughs> and heartbreaking um, Dave what is a great memory you have of bad baseball with the Mets well I'll say a great memory of this season. I'll make it really recent. This is actually in a losing um, in a season we did not make it to the playoffs. That's bad baseball in of itself. But a phenomenal game this season actually took place on a date that's near and dear to the hearts of um, fish fans and dead fans, being August 9th. Of course, August 9th, nineteen ninety-five. Being when Jerry Garcia died, and August 9th, 1998, being when Fish played tribute playing Terrapin Station. And then we have August 9th, 2019, where uh, the Mets came down from three runs in the bottom of the ninth inning to walk off on the Washington Nationals. <laughs> Washington Nationals closer, Sean Doolittle. Very nice guy, very woke. One of the most interesting interviews in baseball. For some reason, the Mets own him as he throws like 88% fastballs a little predictable so they were uh, let's see they were down 6-3 to three, and then there was runners on first and second base and the Mets at their base and Todd Frazier with two outs hits a three run home run just clears the fence so the game is tied and a few batters later 
they would walk off with a Michael Conforto single. I think this game was the start of the Mets tradition where um, the young first baseman Pete Alonzo would rip off the shirt of whomever um, happened to get the walk-off hit. So he ripped off Michael Conforto's shirt and then like the back page of all the tabloids in New York the next day are just like beefcake shirtless Michael Conforto with his arms in the air. <laughs> that was that was a very exciting game. That was on a Friday night. That was when I started to feel the magic. That one, that gave me the most chills of any Mets game in, uh, in 2018. So bad baseball because they did not make it to the playoffs. That was certainly a highlight of uh, a forgotten season. So I took this category at face value, and I think I, I, I have a great memory of an awful experience that can only be defined as Cubsian. Um, 2008, a hundred years since we had won our last World Series title. Nobody I knew had ever witnessed a Cubs World Series. My grandfather, the oldest Cubs fan I know, born in 1926, I want to say. Yeah, 1926. Um, had never seen the Cubs win a World Series. Had seen them play in World Series, but had never seen them win one. Um, we talked all summer long. The team was phenomenal. Uh, Zambrano led the pitch, led, led the uh, rotation. Uh, wow! Yeah, That's a <laughs> Alfonso Soriano, Ramos Ramirez. Uh, 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 we had Mike Fontenot, Mike Fontenot uh, at uh, at shortstop. Um, I mean, it was just an unbelievable assortment of kind of ragtag guys that almost felt on par with um, that 04 Red Sox team just had that same sort of uh, uh, feel to it. We had like Ryan Terrio, who is a scrappy second baseman, had no business uh, being at this level in baseball, but was just fantastic for the Cubs. He's Mark the DeRosa, the riot. Yeah. The riot. Um, I loved this team. Uh, I really believed the entire summer that they were going to win the world series. They had so many moments throughout that season where they just kept elevating themselves and just the magic would just strike over and over again. And what made them really special was the previous uh, four Cubs contenders, 84, 89, 98, and 03, had all come completely out of nowhere, totally unexpected, had gotten so close only to collapse. And then the uh, energy going into the next season was so high and they could never do anything with it in in uh, 85, in 89, in 99, or excuse me, in 90, 99, and 04, which was a horrendous Cubs year uh, where they lost out of the playoffs in the last game of the season. But anyway, 2007 was this phenomenal season for the Cubs. They got swept by the Diamondbacks, and going into 08, there was all this anticipation, and they actually lived up to it. And the whole year was amazing. Uh, the Brewers chased them throughout the year. That was the year that they got CC Sabathia, but the Cubs just kept holding them off. And we go into the playoffs, and we're the number one seed. I think we had like 97 wins that year, and we faced this upstart fucking Dodgers team that had gotten Manny Ramirez on July 31st and went on one of those just ridiculous runs that happens in baseball every couple of seasons for a team that has no business going to the playoffs ends up in the playoffs and ends up going on a tear and i will never forget i have this image in my head of game one of the nlds in 2008 where um 
Cubs and Dodgers, sitting in a bar in Missoula, Montana, one of my best friends, another diehard Cubs fan, and we are so, so amped up. And the Dodgers go up like 3 nothing after two innings, and Wrigley Field is absolutely silent, and the camera just lingers on this old lady. I have no idea if she lived to see 2016, but she's just sitting there, no emotion on her face, almost just like this telling image of, it's happening again, it's happening again. And I remember in that moment saying to myself, you're either in it for the rest of your life, or you got to get out now. This is just, you, you either have to commit or you're out. And yep. I committed, yep. and there's no looking back. And I apologize to my son for it whenever we talk about the Cubs. Um, but uh, yeah, that is uh, in a nutshell that hope, 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 and then just realization of, yeah, I got my hopes up in a way that will never be fulfilled. That it's was the hope that kills you. It's the hope that kills you until 2016. But uh, that's for another. It's for another podcast. Who won the World Series in Wait, was, was that the Phillies? That was the Phillies. Brad Lidge, Paul oh, Newman. Phillies. Phillies Rays. Phillies right. Rays, that yeah. Was Brad Lidge made a deal with the devil at the crossroads. Perfect save season. <laughs> I don't think he ever, never the same, never ever the same. yeah. All right. So let's talk about um, the significance of this show and kind of the June 2004 run. So... For me, I was actually at this concert. This was the opening night of what was perceived at the time to be the final fish tour, final summer tour. I felt a bit guilty there myself because I really should have been studying for the bar exam. I was sort of in a strange headspace to begin with. Like in a nutshell, I'm thinking, okay, this band is already broken up. I'm studying for a very important test. What's the point of being here? Also, aren't these guys a little old at this point? They still be playing Kung? <laughs> and this was um, this was not the Jay-Z night that was the second night that Jay-Z actually came out with Fish and proceeded to rap 99 Problems with Big Pimpin That's, that actually happened it's also kind of worth noting that Fish and Jay-Z were both at a similar uh, career crossroads in 2004 because Fish had put an undermine and had announced their retirement Jay-Z had also released very good. The Black Album that summer had announced his retirement. And we all know how those worked out. <laughs> this is uh, you know, somewhat overshadowed by the uh, Saratoga run that came next, which is probably the best back-to-back shows of 2.0. There's uh, These two Brooklyn shows are some very decent and some very uh, 2.0 sounding jams. Notably the set two of, uh, opening 46 Days and Night One. And the very interesting post-Jay-Z Choctaw's Torture on night two. I mean, it's pretty cool to see two Jay-Z songs and hear Fish play a 17-minute Choctaw's Torture. That's like the most 2004 sentence ever. <laughs> it really is, huh? Yeah. So let me just tell you um, a quick story about, if I can get a bit self-indulgent, hopefully if you've listened to the pod this long, you kind of like some of these tangents. But it's okay. So for this show, June 17th, I went with uh, my very good friend, Kevin Finkel, who I've seen tons of fish shows with. And because it was the Cyclone Stadium, which is the New York Mets single A pen league. So I had a, a Brooklyn Cyclones jersey. It's a Brooklyn right across it. So I figured I would wear that jersey to the show. 
on Coney Island, if uh, next to there's Nathan's Hot Dogs, and you go down a bit for Nathan's Hot Dogs, there's a place that sells all sorts of like candied apples and cotton candy and whatnot. And they also sell corn dogs. So I want a corn dog. So me and my buddy were walking around fish lot. I'm eating a corn dog. And for some reason, he just like snaps me a picture of like munching on a corn dog, like just up in my mouth. And he had, this was in 2004. So people weren't really doing blogs yet. He had a full blown website, which was just a silly self-indulgent website. So he put a photo of me on his website, eating this corn dog with the caption. This is my buddy, Dave. Okay, so about a year later, I'm at my first job out of law school, and I get like a weird email from someone saying, you're in the newspaper. And then I got this from like three other people. And in New York, at the time, I think there was a free paper called AM New York. Maybe it still exists. I don't really see them out and about anymore. But someone told me, go pick up a copy of AM New York. So I went out to the nearest news, uh, the nearest news bin, picked up a copy of this magazine, and looked on the back, and lo and behold, there's an article about how some architectural firm wants to put like um, a futuristic kind of pavilion on Coney Island. There's like a futuristic model of it, and then there's a photo of me eating a corn dog in front of this picture at Coney Island. <laughs> so I guess. In order to get the Brooklyn authenticity, some intern at AM New York Googled image Brooklyn guy corn dog and came upon my friend's website and just grabbed the photo of me eating a corn dog and slapped it on the back of AM New York and Coney Island. <laughs> and I still have that photo. I still have the piece of paper. And we will uh, we'll tweet it. I'll put it up on the Medium page. So... If I wanted to be really vengeful, I could sue AM New York for using my laser, using my my corn dog eating image without my say so. But I decided to let it slide. I mean, the guy who made the corn dog should be the one suing. Like, was he looking for that kind of advertisement? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Picture me looking to muse eating a corn dog. (laughs) You were, you had to be quite satisfied in that moment. Oh yeah, adventures in tubed meat. A story about Mm. New York. Uh, So, to wrap up this segment here before we jump into the jam, let's talk briefly about uh, some of the shows from June 2004. We're going to run through some of the highlights here. Uh, I remember this tour quite well when it was happening. I was living in Montana. I didn't see any of these shows. Uh, The only shows I saw this summer were Coventry, uh, but I remember downloading all of them the next morning on the live fish website there was no live fish app at the time because fish was jamming and there was a lot of energy in this tour it sounded quite different from summer 2003 um, which was a little bit more blues oriented Uh, in hindsight what holds up from this tour really 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 holds up what does not hold up from this tour does not hold up that well because the band was trying to incorporate new songs while also fracturing. So uh, this show, June 17th, you get the first curtain with since 9.32,000, 54 shows, one of two versions of curtain with uh, in um, 2.0. An absolutely outstanding moment dance, set one, uh, 
as well as the aforementioned 46 days in the possum. And then as Dave mentioned uh, in Brooklyn night two, uh, you've got a very rocking and very sick tweezer to close set one. Uh, an all caps CDT, a really great hood jam and Jay-Z because why the hell not? Fish is about to break up. Jay-Z is about to go in retirement. Why the hell can't they play together? What do we got at SPAC, Dave? At June 19th, we got Walls of the Cave into a very ambient jam, 20 minutes long, into Bowie. We had the second set opening, a song I heard the ocean sing, which was uh, almost a candidate for this jam. We decided to cover the Susie instead. Maybe one of the best uh, pure jams uh, featured in that song. And of course, the 32-minute Piper with a full-on Tweed Prize sounding jam in the second half that just keeps going and going and going. And if you were at this show, you would probably collapse. It's like a level of <laughs> going and going that I affiliate with um, the Ghost Jam from July 23rd, 1997, Atlanta, which we covered. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. Just like, when is it going to stop building? But you also don't want it to stop building. It's so good. Right. Next night, June 20th, Saratoga. Very cool, kind of a more rock and roll tinged waves in the first set. Incredible drowned with very tight tension and release build to close out the first set. Pretty much a perfect second set. Seven below into Ghost into a twist into You Enjoy Myself. Just like four songs, no bullshit. I mean, back to back, awesome nights. Twist might be my favorite jam of 2004. I love it so much when they quiet it down and then build it back up. It's just whew, some amazing stuff from them. Uh, June 23rd from Deer Creek. You've got a really excellent gin in set one. The second of two cross-eyed and painlesses of 2.0. Uh, and then a really interesting nothing into 46 days in a sense and subtle sounds into Brian and Robert segment is definitely worth hearing for some 2.0 weirdness. Uh, on paper, it looks a little odd, but uh, hey, 2.0 looked a little odd on paper as well. Uh, and then the next night, 624, Deer Creek as well. You got Down the Z's into Rock and Roll, which uh, closes out set one, kind of the little brother of Drowned into Rock and Roll from 629, 2000. And a tube that opens set two that is just so, so, so good. Uh, this second set's got an antelope, it's got a uh, timber, it's got a late set wedge at a time that they didn't really play the wedge at all and kind of made it feel like an old school show in the moment. Um, really great stuff here from Deer Creek. Then close out June, we've got June 25th, Alpine Valley, Wisconsin. Very good Wolfman's brother in set one. Set two, 27-minute version of Seven Below. All these, like, 27-minute, 35-minute jams. It's, like, the closest <laughs> fish should come to be, like, sound like Spafford, except way fucking better than Spafford. You've got You Enjoy Myself into 2001 to You Enjoy Myself. That'll play. Next night, June 26th from Alpine, the second set. Boogie on Reggae Woman into Ghost into Free. Little Break with Friday. Piper into Harry Hood. Just these really no fluff, all meat sets. Your mileage may vary. I mean, it's certainly, it's a very unique style of jamming in June of 2004. Also, uh, Mike was really 
kind of funky and turned up in all these shows, wasn't he? Yeah, Mike was a huge star of these of these shows. I mean, Trey was his 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 guitar sound was so wild and so distorted. It it, it, it sounds almost nothing like. I mean, it's it's definitely Trey, but it sounds almost nothing like what you imagine Trey's sound to be. And um, Paige and Mike, I felt during this tour, especially. I mean, Fishman was a beast, and you listen to that Piper from SPAC. He's just all over the place. He destroyed 2.0, but but Paige and uh, and Mike really shone in this tour in ways that they hadn't in a little bit of time. So let's listen to some of what we were talking about. So right now we're going to play you a segment of the Wild and Wooly Susie Greenberg from June 17th of 2004.
hope that that was absurd enough for you. Wild enough of a jam out of Susie Greenberg there. And I hope it was absurd enough because we're going to... Uh, well, actually, I hope it was not absurd enough because we're going to continue talking about absurdity in rock. We've got two bands that uh, play some pretty wild, bizarre music from time to time or all the time that we're going to feature here. Um, and a quick preview of segment two, I'm going to be featuring two bands from the same city in which the same borough, if you will, it, in which uh, fish played on six seventeen two thousand four. 2004. The first band up here is Oneida. I'm going to play the song up with people off of the album. Happy new year. So Oneida is a legendary experimental band from Brooklyn. They play around in psych rock, kraut rock, electronica, noise, jam, minimalism. Just know that this is indie jam in its almost purest form. Uh, Oneida is on the uh, Jag Jaguar label, along with the Besnard Lakes, Bon Iver, Dinosaur Jr., Moses Sumney, Oakville River, Angelos Olsen, Preoccupations, Sharon Van Etten and Jamila Woods, amongst many, many other bands. Uh, I saw Oneida in 2014 at the Empty Bottle in Chicago, along with Rob Mitchum and Joel Burke, and the show was a total revelation. Uh, The band Cave opened up. Both bands just blew my brain apart. Uh, So much jam, so much noise. 2019, Brian would give up an entire year of live music for the chance to see that show again. It was unbelievable. Of note, I cannot recommend their 2012 record, A List of the Burning Mountains, enough. It sounds like Fukuoka set two landed in Brooklyn. It's incredible. So the record in question here, Happy New Year, followed Oneida's Underappreciated but critically lauded 2005 record, and that is quite a phrase, underappreciated but critically lauded, uh, The Wedding. Uh, This record in 2006 saw the band continuing working towards communicating what it makes them so special live here in the studio. And as Fish fans, you know, we know a thing or two about this. Uh, This record is varied and organic and song-based in a way in as much of a way as Oneida can possibly be. Uh, The song that we're featuring here, Up With People, is as close to a uh, melodic dance number as one could find within on on an Oneida record, even if it sounds like a clear descent into hell. Now, while the band would continue to develop and expand and refine their sound in a variety of ways from this record, it's a fascinating peek into into the work of a band that is consistently tweaking and constantly searching if you're in new york city and they play live and they do often in new york city uh, or if they ever come to a town near you which i think they tour rarely i cannot recommend it enough you have to have to have to see Oneida. so on that note we're going to play up with people off of Oneida's happy on the top of the trees The highest hills Feel the sweetest breeze You got to get up
Let's talk about absurdity and rock. It's hard to get more absurd than the third Stooges album, Raw Power, both in terms of the album itself and the fraught, legendary story of how it was mixed. Um, it would really take multiple encyclopedia volumes to correctly document the fraught recording and production of the Iggy and the Stooges album, Raw Power, from 1973, but... I think to the best of my memory, the cliff notes are sort of like this. I think after this album was recorded in London with uh, the Stooges and David Bowie, Iggy Pop tried to mix the album in London himself in October of 1972, and he was kind of whacked out of his mind. He tried to really take control, but didn't know what the hell he was doing. So this, he segregated the vocal tracks and instruments into two separate stereo channels, only utilized three of the 24 tracks that were allotted. And then David Bowie was brought on for an emergency remix in Los Angeles. Bowie may have mucked things up even further. It was a commercial release with very muted guitars, tinny drums that kind of drop in and out of the mix at will. So that was the famously muted Bowie mix. And then Iggy Pop tried to remix the master recordings in 1997 pushed everything into the red, overcompensated, weird clicking noises, and kind of this is like uh, you talk about the loudness wars. He was already there back in 1997 because Iggy Pop is always always ahead of his time. I think that the Bowie mix was re-released as the Legacy Addiction. The Pop remix was re-released minus the clipping noise. The very original Iggy Pop mix was circulated as a bootleg. So... Really, I mean, the whole genesis of this album is absurd in and of itself, but it's also an absurd slab of party time rock and roll, which Iggy Pop does indeed become a street walking cheetah with a heart full of napalm. And that is off the first thing you hear from the first song, Search and Destroy, which is the song that we are going to play. And uh, for anyone who's getting their first exposure to the absolute joy that is the Stooges, I'll say don't make Raw Power your uh, first front-to-back album. I would go out and get Funhouse instead, which I would argue is maybe the greatest American rock and roll album of all time and really could have made the Stooges bigger than Rolling Stones if they weren't so prone to self-destruction. At this point, I would absolutely recommend that anybody who enjoys this podcast, enjoys stories in general, go pick up a copy of the classic book called Please Kill Me, the Uncensored Oral History of Punk Rock from Legs McNeil and Jillian McCain. In addition to being endlessly readable and quotable, it really makes the argument that Iggy Pop has no business still being alive. I mean, the tales of abuse in this book make Keith Richards sound Mother Teresa by comparison. <laughs> and yeah, he's still making records. He's still taking his shirt off and still generally being a shorthand for like complete awesome. But, I mean, I think the book first came out in 1996, and it was reissued, I want to say, two years ago with, like, extra notes in the back. And all the notes basically say, like, okay, this person's dead, this person's dead, this person's dead. Iggy Pop, not dead. Oh, this guy died. It's like everyone who was interviewed is dead, except Iggy Pop, because he's fucking incredible. So let's listen to a bit of Search and Destroy off of the Stooges' Raw Power. Thank you. 
right. So we're going to talk some new album recommendations here. Uh, the next time Dave and I sit down to record, um, you will have this episode will have already have gone live. Um, but we're going to sit down to talk about our favorite albums of the decade. And it gets me thinking about what our early favorites of the next decade will be, which is kind of crazy to think about. If Beyond the Pond is around recording episodes in 2029, um, that would be an amazing thing. But uh, here we are towards the tail end of the 2010s, and there are still great records coming out, and we're going to talk about them right now. Uh, so the record I'm going to talk about is from um, – a artist named Leslie Bear who goes by the name Longbeard, and the album is Means to Me. So this is Leslie Bear's second album. It's a really wonderful, airy, uh, and great experience, great example of uh, guitar-led dream pop. Uh, her debut album, Sleepwalker, came out in 2015. Drew comps to Galaxy 500 of all bands uh, of Episode Two, Hampton Bag fame. Uh, and based on its initial success, she was able to quit her corporate job at the time and tour with Japanese Breakfast, all before returning to her home in New Brunswick, New Jersey, to get a computer science degree, just in case. Uh, this record, Means to Me, is filled with achingly melancholic feelings of nostalgia and uh, pinings for some semblance of home. The record has drawn uh, comparisons for her to another bedroom pop artist, Jay Som, who D Dave featured all the way back in episode one, Camden Chalk Dust. And throughout this record, her guitar, her voice really guide the album with an airy directionlessness that has been a perfect antidote for me of late. Like many dream pop records, lyrically, this lingers on relatable ideas that rarely, if ever, dive deep below the surface, but are still satisfying in a very contemplative way. Uh, there's something about this record that just feels familiar, even in a vague way. And that lack of specificity, lack of descriptiveness, it's part of the reason uh, that it's connected with me. It just sounds really nice in just the simplest way possible. Part of me feels that this is what Juliana Barwick would sound like if she had more lyrics associated with her Eno-esque ambient music. So I would encourage all of our listeners to check out Longbeard's Means to Me. It's a really great album. I've been enjoying it quite a bit here in early fall 2019. Dave, what do you got for us? I have a record that came out this morning. This is the eighth album, I think, by the New Pornographers, who we've definitely talked about in this podcast a lot before. This album Episode six, we featured their last album. Oh, okay. We featured What Out Conditions? Yeah, we did. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah it came out in 2017. The new one, which came out today, is called In the Morse Code of Your Brake Lights. I'll listen to it about three times. I really, I'm excited because, I mean, The New Pornographer is one of those bands where every album is good. They, I think their best album was probably their third album, Twin Cinema, back in 2005. Their first three albums are really buzzy, legendary power pop albums, kind of with album number four, Challengers. They slowed things down a bit. And then from that point on, I think there's successive records being together, uh, Bro Bruisers in 2014, and then Wet Out Conditions in 2017. You know, we're all established kind of a baseline, a very good good variety of songs. 
But this one, it kind of seems that they put in more effort, I guess. Like there are some songs that just seem like there's like really strident marches. There's really, really interesting string arrangements. That's like the craziest thing about it is that there's some orchestrations thrown down in the middle of these songs that are practically like Van Dyke Parks-like in both their intricacies and they're just absurdities. I'm going to like check to see what was the songs that really grabbed. Oh yeah. The fourth song called Colossus of Rhodes. That one's sung by Nico Case. That's like soaring, almost like Echo and the Bunnymen driving song. And the song number six, Dream Like an On the Rush, which is like a march that's got these incredible string sections and these pounding drums. Just it sounds, it sounds better produced. The vocals just, it's got more kick. I was like, I was surprised by it. You know, like they say, it's the animal farm saying is that all animals are equal, but some of them are, some are more equal than others. It's like all new pornographers records are good, but this one just seems to be very good, but it only came out this morning. So we'll see how it holds up. But in the meantime, yeah, new pornos, the Morse code of your brake lights. Check it out. All right, guys, segment two up now. You're going to talk about Brooklyn. Brooklyn, New York. Very interesting place. Dave, as a New Yorker, what are your thoughts on Brooklyn? Well, a lot of good restaurants. There's a lot of parts of Brooklyn. Brooklyn's a gigantic borough. Yes. It's it's huge. I've been downtown Brooklyn a lot because I have to go to the courthouse there. There's, I mean, you can't just, it's hard to characterize as one part of Brooklyn. There's the very leafy, grown-up, family-friendly Brooklyn of Carroll Gardens and Park Slope and Cobble Hill. Then there's Williamsburg, which has gotten so gentrified over the past 15 years or so. Then there's that old-school Brooklyn. There's Bay Ridge, there's Bensonhurst, there's Diker Heights. That's more of a entirely different type of Brooklyn. I like it. I can dig it. I've always enjoyed my time there. And uh, I know what you mean. You go from one neighborhood to another and you feel like you're in totally different cities. Um, But it has a completely unique feel to Manhattan in a lot of ways. Um, I have always enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed um, the music that I've heard that's come out, that's come out of that city. It's a very, or that borough. It's a very creative part of the country. So we're going to talk about two bands from Brooklyn historically that uh we both love very much Uh, up first i'm going to talk about one of my favorite bands woods the song is it honest off of their 2012 album bend beyond so i have definitely featured woods before on this podcast and i will definitely feature woods again they're one of my favorite bands the last 15 years and they just sound like brooklyn to me they're shimmery Nerdy cool. I guess this is like the Williamsburg side of Brooklyn, if you will. Uh, nerdy cool, very jammy, left of center, somewhat sleepy with just enough coffee to get through the day. The record Ben Beyond is the band's seventh album in seven years. And while it's not my favorite of theirs, it represents a great piece of growth in production and songwriting that would ultimately carry them to 2014's masterpiece with light and with love. The album opener, Ben Beyond, is a treat live, often stretching well beyond 10 minutes. And the record is filled with, honestly, some of their catchiest songs to date and really represented a break from 
the band who fully embraced the freak in freak folk on 2009's Songs of Shame. Of note, quick, quick uh, digression, had that record been released in late, had that record not been released, excuse me, in late 2009, and rather just three months later in 2010, it'd be in my top 10 albums of the decade. C'est la vie. Uh, continuing with Ben Beyond here, song Callie in a Cup and Is It Honest that we're going to play uh, are as close as Woods have come to writing a hit single. I have no idea, honestly, how this band isn't bigger. Um, some would say it's lead singer Jeremy Earle's voice. I personally happen to like his voice quite a bit. Um, but they've written some of the best indie jam songs of the last two decades. The live shows are phenomenal. And uh, Jeremy Earle is a really excellent lyricist. Further, uh, for this record to kind of go hand in hand with the fact that it was more focused on production and a bit of a tighter album, the band all but moved beyond their tape manipulator, G. Lucas Crane. The result is this really shimmering album, probably the most shimmering that they'd made to that point. Uh, it's clear with this record that Woods focused more on the songs than the sound. While fans of their sprawling freak folk jams, September with Pete, anybody, may be disappointed here. The successes of this record showcase the kind of subtle growth that is rare for bands to for for bands today. Uh, similar to their Brooklyn compatriots, the National, we're no longer of Brooklyn, really. No. Uh, Woods used each album as an opportunity to further refine and develop their sound, rather than overhaul it. While there's certainly a part of me that does love when a band goes all in on reinvention, there is something to be said about uh, pining away at a singular style and seeing what's possible within baby steps away from it rather than just throwing everything at the wall. So on that, we're going to play a bit of Is It Honest off of Woods' 2012 album, Bend Beyond. Brian, I'm going to talk about a very different type of Brooklyn band. I am very happy that we were talking about Brooklyn on this episode because it finally gave me an opportunity to talk to the people about Typo Negative. And the song we're going to play is their classic Black Number One off of the Bloody Kisses album. So when you think about Brooklyn and rock music these days, one kind of flashes back to like the blog rock mid or early 2000s with bands like Interpol, The National, TV on the radio, you know, any number of 
smaller bands kind of rehearsing in um, Williamsburg practice spaces. Typo Negative are not that kind of Brooklyn. They're 1990s Roughnecks from Bensonhurst, more in keeping with the traditional thickly accented Brooklyn and affiliated with the legendary metal club L'Amour in the Bay Ridge neighborhood that no longer exists, but was instrumental in showcasing not only metal bands, but also the uh, burgeoning New York City hardcore scene, bands like Agnostic Front, Sick of It All, Madball, and Canarsie Brooklyn-based rap metalers Biohazard, whose frontman Evan Seinfeld once said in a song, And if you're in Brooklyn, you best watch your back. It's not that scary anymore. So, Typo Negative consisted of Peter Steele on vocals and bass guitar, Kenny Hickey on guitar, Josh Silver on keyboards, and Johnny Kelly on drums. Originally, the drummer was Sal Abrascato, but he left to join um, some other Brooklyn band, Life of Agony, which has been through several lead singers. Johnny Kelly was his drum tech. So, Typo's thing was gothic metal that kind of walked the line between being rather severe, but at the same time, the band was clearly in on their joke. And this is probably best exemplified from the song that got me into the band in high school and their best known song, which you're going to play Black Number One, which is a 11 minute send up of a goth girl's beauty regimen sung in the six foot six Peter Steele's vampire style baritone with great lines like, her perfume smells like burning leaves every day is Halloween. His diction is incredible. And he definitely had a sense of humor and kind of portrayed himself as sort of like a modern day sexy Dracula. Also kind of took a lot of pleasure in needling uh, some more upright types with a brand of political correctness that uh, plan of political incorrectness that really wouldn't fly in 2019. I remember hearing an interview with him where he said that uh, rock and roll music is only good if somebody happens to be offended, which, okay. <laughs> and um, that song, Black Number One, like I said, it's 11 minutes long. It's awesome keyboard breaks and the guitarist Kenny Hickey's very signature use of reverb and feedback. And the Bloody Kisses album is the album which I would begin with the band. It actually went platinum. Uh, the video is featured on Beavis and Butthead. And album has, you know, classic typo negative jams like Christian Woman, their cover of Seals and Crops, Summer Breeze, and Blood and Fire. As in, no more nights of blood and fire. The, uh, the two albums which preceded it, Slow, Deep, and Hard and Origin of the Feces are more informed by Peter Steele's original thrash metal band Carnivore and are politically incorrect to a somewhat cartoonish degree. So Bloody Kisses and its more alt-rock sounding follow-up October Rust in 1996, those are the two two records to focus on at first. I think they put out seven albums, the last being the very solid album Dead Again in twenty in 2007, 
Unfortunately, the band was forced to break up when Peter Steele died in his sleep in 2010 of, I think, what was believed to be an aortic aneurysm. So Type O Negative will forever be known for their sense of humor, their very cool black and green color palette, and you know, more or less inventing goth metal to a degree, and influencing, numer- uh, influencing numerous younger bands, in particular the band Paul Bearer, we discussed before, and they literally played a Halloween show dressed as typo negative, and I think they played nothing but typo negative songs. I know that they put out an EP with a cover of the typo song Love You to Death. They are very heavy, original, and super fun, and very indebted to a certain type of Brooklyn. So let us listen to part of Black Number One by Typo Negative. She's in love with herself She likes the dark And on her milk-white neck The devil's mark Now it's all hollow Moon is full But will she trick or treat I bet she will guys i want to thank you for hanging with us here in episode 78 where we covered just mind-bending Susie greenberg from brooklyn new york on june 17th 2004 so going over the songs that we played here in this episode in segment one absurdity and rock we played Oneida's Up With People off of Happy New Year, as well as The Stooges' Search, Search and Destroy off of Raw Power. And segment two, all caps, Brooklyn! I played Is It Honest by Woods off of 2012's Ben Beyond. And Dave played Type O Negatives Black Number One off of what record was this off of? Bloody Kisses. Bloody Kisses. Brooklyn's got some of the hardest motherfuckers out there. They're so hard. That's when uh, I saw Biohazard and Clutch in 2002. And Biohazard, it was a show in New York. And the singer Evan Seinfeld, like every other word on stage was, hard. You guys are so hard. (laughs) Old school Brooklyn. Anyhow, as always... We are on social media, on Twitter at at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Our Simplecast page, beyondthepond.simplecast.fm, as always reminds you to check out the master Spotify playlist, Beyond the Pond podcast songs. A while ago, we thought we were going to put this in the volumes. We just said, screw it. Let's just put almost every song we've ever used into <laughs> 
playlist. We're about to cross 500 as well. I mean, mm, it is a wild, yeah. wild shuffle adventure. I wouldn't recommend it for a party because it can either be really great or really not so great. On <laughs> as always, we are very proud members of the Osiris podcast family. Please visit some of the other awesome Osiris podcasts at osirispod.com and leave us an iTunes review. We look for them, we read them, and anything to increase our visibility in Tim Cook land is always welcome. It is, it is. Tim Cook, we got our eyes out for you. Keep us keep us on the list for a top music podcast of, uh, of iTunes. Please, please. Please. <laughs> uh, so our publishing structure. Uh, Do us a favor, Tim Cook. Just, That's all we want. Just one. We're just... Few- you know, we we do we release these for you every week, man. Right. Uh, <laughs> our publishing structure, uh, as you guys well know, every other Tuesday is our typical publishing structure. We've done a few lot episodes here this fall. We've got a bunch of great stuff coming for you here as the fall continues, as we go to wrap up 2019 and the decade. Uh, but yeah, pretty much every other Tuesday, keep an eye out for us. Uh, not as many bonus episodes coming out here in the latter part of this year, but just some very solid, strong BTP episodes, some hard ones, if you will. Hard episodes of BTP. Hard episodes, really right down to the heart of the matter, just injecting it into your veins, the BTP. So if you made it this far, as always, thank you very much. Always like to encourage people to um, Spotify is one thing, but really, if you love these artists, please buy vinyl records, go see them live, buy shirts. Yes. It's hard as ever to make money in the music industry these days. So Spotify just doesn't cut it. If you already bought the vinyl and see the band and have the shirt and you want to have the song on Spotify on your phone, that's cool. So do what you can and then come back shortly. We'll hold hands, we'll do some kumbaya, we will fight fish myopia, and we will go beyond the pond. Osiris.